Welcome to the Dollars and Hops podcast, where we help you optimize your financial future. Here are your hosts, Scott and Lance. Welcome back to the Dollars and Hops podcast. I'm your host, Lance, and I have my co-host with me here, Scott. This is where we help you optimize your financial future. Scott, what is new with you, man? It's been it's been a little while. We're getting back in the saddle. I'm excited to see you on the FaceTime, man. What's going on, brother? Lance, it's good to be back. It's been a little while. Um, I I'm excited. I'm excited to get into a lot of things on this episode here. We're going to be hitting on GameStop. I mean, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 27th of January. GameStop. I mean, I think that my Twitter <laughs> feed's just filled with GameStop and AMC and. And then we're, we're also going to touch on some bonds so and talk about why we don't like bonds. So I think this will be an interesting episode for for, for kind of all of our listeners here. So, But, but before we get into that, uh, we want to get into the hops portion of the podcast. For those of you that do not know, Lance and I will sip on a craft brew each and every episode. And at the end, we put the beers head to head in our hops showdown portion. So Lance, what are you drinking tonight? So I'm, I'm going back to one of our favorite, one of my favorite breweries. This is Elysian Brewing out of Seattle, Washington. I had a friend turn me on this beer a couple years ago for the first time, and it changed the way I thought about beers this, this uh, brewery did. So I'll be drinking one of their, maybe their most well-known IPA. This is the Space Dust IPA, uh, and I'm excited to dig into it this episode. Scott, what are you sipping on? Awesome. I am going to try a beer from Union Craft Brewing. This is a local one out of Baltimore, Maryland, and this is called Curtain Up Hazy IPA. So I'm excited to sip on this one this evening. Uh, but but uh, want to hop in right away to the headline of the week, which is it's, it's all about GameStop, as we mentioned at the top here. So Reddit, this one. But is it really is it really about GameStop or is it there a different narrative here that we need to kind of dive into? There, there you know is I mean? a different narrative. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. So this headline from CNET.com, actually, which is not a normal place that we pull headlines from. But this one says mm. Reddit and Elon Musk sent GameStop stock soaring why amc and blackberry are next so obviously like i said we're recording this on wednesday january 27th so i don't even know what's going to happen between now and when we publish this but amc today is up 301 percent amc like the movie theaters right in one in one day in one single day and they didn't have they didn't report earnings Nothing, nothing fundamentally changed about the company. Same yeah. GameStop, same, same sort That's of thing. Scary. 134% one day there. It's up far more than that. It's been on a, on a rally. Yesterday the last it was few up, days. I think 90, 90 something percent yesterday. And then on top of that, another hundred plus percent. So it, exactly. Yeah, and then, wild. and then Blackberry. You remember those? Yeah. You remember those phones? I, like I didn't even know that this was a publicly traded company anymore. <laughs> BlackBerry's up thirty two percent today. So so what's happening? Oh, you, you might have heard. You might have heard about all of this. I'm sure you have. But uh, essentially, Reddit users are piling in to GameStop and other companies because they notice that there's a heavy short interest in the stock by institutional investors. 
So obviously there's only a certain number of shares outstanding in these companies. And these Reddit users themselves are kind of piling in and artificially raising the stock price up in and of itself. But if you're shorting a stock, it essentially means you're betting that the price of that stock will go down. So if the price of the stock goes up too quickly and you're shorting it, the people that are betting against it are actually forced to buy the stock at higher prices, which is essentially just to cover their losses. So it's sending these near bankrupt companies to the moon. <laughs> I mean, essentially to the moon. So these, these people are having to cover their shorts and mm. me watching from the sideline, I'm sitting here laughing. I'm, I'm not participating in any of this, but, right. but it's like playing with fire at the end of the day. Like right. there's, I think there's people on the sidelines going, Holy cow, you know, GameStop was up nine. What you said? 90% <laughs> yesterday. And now it's up another 130%. Oh, is it just going to keep going up? You know, am it's, I missing out Bitcoin. on the gold rush? Right. It's Bitcoin. <laughs> oh yeah. Bitcoin. We just talked about Bitcoin, but yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's it, like, should I yeah. be, should I be getting in on this? And, and I think the answer is no, absolutely uh, not. Absolutely. No. Yeah, no, the, no. These these companies are are just being artificially inflated. And at the end of the day, it's the fundamentals that matter. At the end of the day. So the so the people that are that are piling into the stock, there's gonna be somebody holding the bag at the end that are buying these stocks at these outrageous prices. And fundamentals in the long term will will prove out. So just be careful out there. Exactly. The company is not worth what it's being traded for right now, right? Exactly what Scott's saying. It's being artificially inflated. To me, the real story here is kind of the behind the scenes that the company is just kind of the pawn or the token uh, that was selected to be bid upon. So you have these, you know, uh, <laughs> wealthy, high dollar, high trading volume hedge fund personnel, we'll call them. That are that are managing billions, maybe even hundreds of billions of dollars. Is that is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. On the grand scheme, right? So th this these are big money players in the market who are institutional investors and who are managing other people's money, right? And so when they're shorting a stock, they're betting against it. You have, to me, that's like. So the more I I, I watch this play out, it just feels like Star Wars, Scott. It feels like Star Wars. You have the hedge fund managers who are obviously the evil empire. Darth <laughs> Vader. Yes. You know, uniform, like corporate, uh, you know, take over the world, take over the galaxy. The empire, you know, is striking and it's like investing and growing and it's, it's you know, evil. Um, that's a little bit of a stretch, but uh, just for the sake of, of fun here. Um, and you have these little individual retail investors who are no different than you or I and they they like to get on Reddit and talk about their different bets. Yeah, they're just a bunch like, of financial nerds like yeah, trying to day yeah, trade sure. the stock market like in their exactly, in their sweatpants. Yeah, trying to make a buck. <laughs> right, exactly. And they all get this idea that hey, these stocks are being shorted so badly that if we went in and with and we all did it together, uh, we can we can drive the price of the stock up and really like, you know, put the screws to these guys. And that's exactly what they did, which had an, another like doubling down effect to drive the stock price even higher when the shorts had to sell and get out. Is that right, right Scott? Exactly. Yeah, they had. The so cover. you have the, indi the individual investors or the retail investors are 
I mean, absolutely like the rebels, right? In Star Wars, where they're like a disbanded group of like different types of individual people trying to come together and trying to fight back against the empire. And so that's really what you have going on is like these two groups of investors who are kind of battling it out against each other. And so far, <laughs> it appears that the unlikely, uh, the rebels are kind of like winning this battle. And, and now they've taken it to multiple fronts, but it's not just GameStop. It's AMC and it's it's BlackBerry and like who's next and it just it just has this weird feeling to it, but um, the more I've researched it, uh, eventually the markets will catch up and somebody will be left holding the bag, the last one off. The greater fool theory is um, who's the greater fool, right? The last one on on the bus before everybody else gets off is the one left holding the bag and will suffer the most losses. So eventually these things will crash. Um, I actually think Bitcoin's not a whole lot different, but that's a whole different discussion. You can go back and listen to our episode on Bitcoin. But it is, it is similar, right? It's a similar idea that it's a bubble. It's not based on anything substantial, fundamentals, like what Scott's saying, actual earnings, actual reported profits, dollars um, from business cash flows from services or products offered or sold in the marketplace. None of that is happening here. This is purely speculation and almost like in a Star Wars like way, rebels against the evil empire. And it's just fascinating to watch. And I'm going to go grab some popcorn, man, because I don't know what is going to happen. But I'm sitting in our uh, well-diversified index funds, and uh, it has had minimal effect on our <laughs> investments. Thank goodness. It's almost like they were listening to our last podcast about the whole Bitcoin bubble type thing. And yeah. they were like, and the, and the Reddit users were like, no, no, no. Wait, just, just wait. We got something better for you. Here it comes. So, uh, oh, just you think, yeah, you think you think Bitcoin is volatile? Hold on. You know, here, hold my drink. We're gonna go ahead and take care of AMC, GameStop, and BlackBerry on the actual stock market. It's <laughs> yeah. crazy. Twenty twenty one. The wow. BlackBerry, the BlackBerry and GameStop one definitely gets me. The AMC theories, theaters, maybe they'll be around for a little while. But no, I uh, actually remember going to GameStop when we were kids, Scott. Like, oh, in video it's games like for like twenty bucks and like being like, man, I paid fifty bucks for this game, and now you're going to give me like six dollars. <laughs> like what? You know, yeah, their their business model I don't think lasted very long. No, somehow they're still <laughs> around for at least a little while around. longer. Now, now they're <laughs> now they're worth the uh, eighteen billion dollars or something. So. All right, Lance, let's go ahead and get into the main topic here. We're going to be talking about bonds. Bonds. Lance, we we kind of hinted at this in a prior episode. I think we were talking about 4% rule, and then there might have been another episode in between there. And we were talking about bonds and why we did not like bonds. But I think before we kind of dive into why we don't like bonds, I think it's important to really define what a bond is. So what is a bond? A bond is a fixed income instrument that represents a loan made by an investor to a borrower. Uh, a bond can be thought of as an IOU between a lender and a borrower that includes the details of the loan and its payments. Uh, so basically, I mean, this is a way for companies to raise capital for their operations and to pay a set interest rate on raising that capital, right? They're paying you back a guaranteed interest rate over a period period of time, essentially. Um, <laughs> that's high level what a bond is, but I think it's important to like understand is how that 
fits into your overall investment mix and kind of what the risks are that are associated with bonds. So when I think about bonds, I, I think of it as almost like it, it's, it's basically like a, I almost think of it like as like a CD at like a bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. I'm getting a like set interest rate on this money that I'm You're giving. locking in a rate. Yeah. But I'm not getting any ownership right. of the company whatsoever. So if the company does really, really well, I don't get to see any sort of increase in my equity price like I would with a stock. And I'm just getting you know, this guaranteed interest rate. But there's still risk that comes along with with sure. a bond, just like it does right. with a stock, right? So, if you own, um, you know, a bond in a, in a specific company, there's still the risk that that company goes out of business and can't pay the bond back. Yeah. So, and that's sure. a risk with your stocks as well. Uh, but your but your upside is limited. So, that to me. You know, I, I don't want to go neat. I mean, we can start talking about all sorts of things as it relates to bonds, but that to me uh, is kind of the main reason I don't love them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you, Scott. And, and Scott and I agree wholeheartedly on this. We are totally congruent on how we think about bonds. I, I think what's always thrown me off is the conventional wisdom in the personal finance world has always been like a, per, a certain percentage of your portfolio should remain in bonds to help smooth the ride and, you know, reduce volatility, lower your risk. You still get a little bit of gain, but yeah, it's not a lot of gain, but Hey, it minimizes your risk. So it's good to have a little bit in there. Maybe like if you're young, like 5%, maybe if you're older, 20%, 40% bonds, maybe even 50% bonds if you're like in your retirement years. And I, I just want to go ahead and kick my foot through the door on that theory and just say, I challenge that wholeheartedly. I completely disagree with that mindset for the simple fact that you are capping your upside tremendously. You are capping your upside by an insane amount, especially when we're taking into account compound interest and what you're taking out of out of that potential percentage gain year over year, and that compounded on itself year over year, and what that can do to your portfolio, uh, it just doesn't make sense to me because you don't have zero risk. You still are introducing risk into your portfolio with bonds. It's not that they're completely safe. It's just that they're perceived as less risky, and I would even say that's kind of a false perception because let me tell you something, if that company that you have a bond with, I don't care if it's the safest company out there, it's a company and something like coronavirus hits that you didn't see coming and maybe that company goes bankrupt, you think they're paying your bond? I got news for you, they're not. And yet that investment goes away completely. So you know, when we look at the historical rates of return on the S&P 500 or the total stock market or even just like a growth index or even just like a technology sector or anything, over the past 10 years, 30 years, 60 years, 100 years, you will see the overall returns smoothed out, you know, like over the course of a lifetime are significantly higher, even including down years and market turndowns and the recession of 09, the coronavirus, um, you know, market crash, 
the stock market crash of 1987, the the Great Depression, even. I mean, there's always a rebound, and it and it's and if, as long as you're staying in the market and riding it out, and maybe buying a little bit more on the dip if you can, and if you can't, just riding it out and not trying to time the market, you are going to be way way better off than trying to introduce just a little bit of bonds into your portfolio um, to quote unquote smooth the ride or to minimize risk. That's my opinion. I, I yeah. couldn't, I couldn't agree more. You have, um, and, and, and I think Lance is right when he says it, it's, I don't know what it is about all the financial pundits out there. They all talk about what percentage of bonds you should have in your portfolio. And ultimately, as we as we kind of saw with the 4% rule episode, Bill Benjen, you know, he 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 did the chart for us. We have it in the show notes uh for for oh, episode right. number yeah. 11. You can see that when you go 100% stocks, 75% stocks, the money actually lasts longer in retirement. Mm. So it's less risky for your overall uh, portfolio to actually just own stocks than it is to have any bonds. So that that's, I, I think that's the main takeaway here. I mean, we could sit here and talk about bonds for a long time about what they are and all of the different risks that are associated. But the number one risk that I think is often overlooked is really just the opportunity cost of owning that right. bond. Instead of owning the bond, yeah. you could own a stock or you could own a mutual fund or an ETF like we, like we, you know, say here, that's really the, you know, that that's really the main risk. Here. Yeah. The risk of not having the upside that you could have had and, and capping your upside. I completely agree. And you know, Scott, what, what is like a standard or kind of like a conventional, I know there's all different types of bonds and we don't want to get all into it for the purposes of this episode, but what would be a standard range of returns you might expect from owning a bond or a bond fund? Roughly. Yeah. So for right, like, in, in today's environment, we're looking at anywhere between two and three, three and a half percent on a bond is, is usually what you'll earn. And and long term, I mean, they've they've averaged higher. But in today's interest rate environment, I mean, uh, we're looking at the two to four percent range is the high range. Two to four percent range. And, and the higher range when they are when they do go higher, what could that get up to roughly? Yeah, I mean, you could probably get into the maybe up to like six percent. Uh, but that would be that would be in a company that's right. very risky. Of course, um, they they don't have a good credit rating. That's why they nice. have to issue yeah, that's right. at the higher rate. Yeah, that's why they have to pay the higher. Right, exactly. So okay, so let's just say that two to four, two to five percent range. I'm going to give you all just a quick data. I, I did a little homework for this episode. I just looked at the S and P index. This is from Berkshire Hathaway. There, uh, it's Warren Buffett's company on his annual report. They, they publish the their performance against the S&P 500 index. And so I've just looked from 2009 to two, including 2020, the year ended. So for those 12 years, the past 12 years, the S&P index has averaged. You ready, Scott? You want to guess? Uh, let's go 21%. Wrong, but close. 15.5% since right, 2009. S&P 500. That includes dividends uh, for... For each year, and and really, only one of those years was actually a down year. That's 2018. Every other year was positive. Um, many of the years were in double digits. And to me, it just 
that just speaks that just answers it right there. I know it's only 11 years or 12 years. That's a, a shorter time frame. But you're looking at capping your upside when some of these years that the S&P returned was in 2013, it returned 32 percent in 2019. It returned 31 percent. I mean, you have you don't have that option, right? You're taking yourself out of the game. You're going on the sidelines and you're saying, nope, I'm going to cap it at two or four percent. Make sure we don't go, you know, too much risk. But if that company still goes out of business, I'm still not going to get the bond. That's just me. Yeah, it, it's it seems like it's inherently it's risky to me to own bonds. Oh uh, yeah, which is kind of the the counterpoint. I mean, most people would say, oh, owning bonds is less risky, right. but to me, it's risky owning bonds. I like that, Scott. I think that's a really uh, different way to look at it, but it's accurate. It is risky to own bonds because you're just you're capping your gains and you're, you have a massive opportunity cost from what you should be invested in. That's our opinion. All right, Lance. I, and I, yeah, I agree. Lance, let's, let's go ahead and get into some listener questions. We got the questions that need answers here. I am going to ask you this first one from our good friend and pal of the show here, Jimmy. Uh, last year, there was a fair amount of wealthy investors, including us senators in the news who saw the dip and coming loss and we're able to pull back, I think he's talking about coronavirus, and then jump back in the market as it started to climb up, making a ton more money than everyone else. What are the signs that you look for in the market that it's time to pull back? And then how long do you wait on the sidelines and when do you jump back in? I know the investors in 1929 who tried to ride out the market lost when the Great Depression happened. So I know there must be points when you pull back. What advice do you have? That's a good question, Jimmy. Man, we love your questions. Keep writing in. You keep us uh, laughing, and we we just love uh, love the fact that we, we we got a boomer listening to us. Man, you're the man. We love you, Jimmy. Uh, so here's the thing with with timing the market. Um, we don't. I don't. And Scott doesn't. And we don't try to um, because he can't. And that's really the simple answer to what you're asking. And I, and I would even challenge to say in the news, you know, senators saw the dip coming and they were able to jump out, pull back and then get back in and make all this money. And, the, and it's like, maybe, maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Um, I mean, who's to know, right? That, I mean, we don't really know how much money they made or how much money they didn't make and all that. And there's a time and place to look at, you know, if that was just or if there's going to be, you know, legal ramifications for what they did with insider information, all that will come to pass. But what I'm going to tell you is you can't time the market accurately every single time. You can guess, you can get lucky, you can even make some money doing it, but eventually you will lose some money doing it. And what this, what the data shows, the things I've seen, the studies I've researched and the podcasts I listen to, man, all the data points to not being able to time the market. And not only that, but staying invested for the long term puts you in a much, much better position long term than trying to time the market and jump out because you got to get, you got to time it right on the sell and you got to time it again on the buy. Then you got to time it again the next time you sell and time it right once more again when you sell it. And the cycle is just not sustainable. I think we can all agree on that. Um, and so your questions are good because it's like, hey, what signs would you look for when it's time for a pullback and and how long to wait? And all those are great questions. And the answer is you don't. You stay in. And I think building up cash reserves might be a good plan. 
um, so that when the market does take a dip, um, maybe you could buy a little more uh, when the when the entire stock market's on discount, on sale, on clearance, you know, that kind of thing. I think that that would be the only way that I would try to time where you're kind of just padding your your positions and where you're at. Um, and then finally, uh, your your comment about 1929 and the Great Depression and those people who tried to write out the market loss. Well, I would say, you know, the market did come back. <laughs> it, and, and in fact, it came back a lot more. And, and our current stock market is the same stock market that that market was. It wasn't like that market went away and a whole new stock market came. No, that's the same stock market. Um, you know, so I, I would argue that, you know, barring anything catastrophic, I mean, not even coronavirus, could could destroy our, our stock market in the way that doesn't mean that it could ever could sure it could i mean an asteroid could hit the earth tomorrow and we could all be vaporized so i mean anything anything's possible but um <laughs> i would say that market actually did come back and there were some people who did stay in and made a ton of money because of that um you know it's not uncommon to hear stories like that of generations past of people's great grandparents who you know decided to invest, you know, right towards the end of the Great Depression or, or, or survive through it and invest in, and do very well when the market roared back. So that's, uh, that's my answer, Jimmy. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Send us a note. You're the man, Jimmy. We love you. Yeah. And Jimmy, I mean, I think the, the, the coolest thing is like, so as Lance was saying, pile in, you know, like when, when things are going bad and the, and, 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 and you can buy the stock market at a dip, that's when you should get excited. It's just adding to your position at a lower price. You can buy more shares when the prices are lower. So you should, you should think of that as a, as a very good thing. Scott, we got another question here. This is from a listener. Um, Scott and Lance, I was listening to your financial playbook episodes and noticed a pretty big difference between your first step of your financial playbook and another show I listened to, The Dave Ramsey Show, and his baby step strategy. Dave says to save $1,000 in an emergency fund before moving on to baby step two, which is paying off all debt except the house. You guys recommend saving three to six months of living expenses as step one, which for me is substantially more. Wouldn't it be more effective to tackle debt faster, as Dave suggests, rather than hoarding money in a savings account for a rainy day? Scott, what do you think? Thank you for the question. This is a good one. And to answer your que the last question, it, it is more effective to tackle debt faster than saving an emergency fund if life is perfect, but it's not. Mm. Life isn't perfect. So as we said in the in, in episodes three and four of the financial playbook, our step one is to establish an emergency fund of three to six months of living expenses. I don't know for, for you, Lance, but that three to six months of living expenses is significantly more than just a thousand dollars. It's a lot for sure. It is a lot of money. Um, and the reason kind of behind that is if something were to happen to your job, we want you to have those cash reserves there to be able to weather the storm. If you're paying down uh, debt and you only have a thousand dollar emergency fund, well, you might run through that that thousand dollars, you know, in in a, in a few weeks to just cover living expenses. So we don't want you to be in that stressful position. 
of not having a cushion to fall back on in the event that something happens. So I think it's more important to kind of have a cushion of money and then tackle the debt as quickly as you possibly can uh, rather than just having the $1,000 emergency fund. Well said, Scott. Well said. Let's go ahead. Let's move on to our hops showdown portion of the show. Um, Scott, what did you think about your beer? How was it? Union City, right? Yeah, so this one is from Union Craft Brewing, again, out of Baltimore, Maryland. This is the Curtain Up Hazy IPA. I really enjoyed it, Lance. You know I'm a sucker for hazy IPAs. Um, this one didn't disappoint. Good tropical flavors. Definitely some floral notes that I could that I could smell here. Um, great hazy. I would give it a solid 87. Nice, beautiful. As a reminder, I was sipping on Elysian Space Dust IPA. Beautiful can art, by the way. This is their can, not the bottle. I think the cans are kind of newer. Um, this is one of my all-time favorite IPAs. If you like IPAs and you have not had Space Dust IPA from Elysian, if you live in the Charleston area, you can get it at a grocery store. It's right, it's right here local now. Um, even though it's made out of uh, Seattle, Washington, I'm going to tell you what I, I think this is. I think it's my favorite IPA ever. There's something about it that it's um, it's strong, but it's not um, overly bitter or or o- overpowerful on the palate. It's well balanced. It's crisp, um, and and it just it just hits just right. I don't know how else to describe it. It just has a. Um, are we are we breaking records tonight? Lance? I don't know if we're going to break a record. I actually don't know what the. I don't remember what the record is, but um, it's gonna might get close. I, it's 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 a ninety five. This reference. is gonna be a ninety six. You had to just plug ninety five because oh. I, I had ninety six picked out <laughs> as I was sipping on it. It is a ninety six. Um, I, I right. hope one day we can find a beer that's a ninety seven plus, but um, it's gonna be tough to beat this man. Uh, it's uh, it's fantastic. I don't know what to say, but I could go on and on about it, but I, our listeners will get tired of it, I'm pretty sure. So I'll, I'll stop right there. Go try <laughs> one for yourself. One of my favorites, Elysian Space Dust IPA. Check it out. All right. We're all heading to the grocery store to grab the, uh, the Space Dust IPA. Thank you, Lance. All right. Before we head out, I want to leave you all with our action step. Have you looked at your portfolio to see what percentage of bonds that you have? How old are you? Do you need the bonds? Are they more risky than you think? Are bonds going to help you reach your financial goals? Are they going to hurt you in reaching your financial goals? Take a look at your portfolio and act accordingly. Amen. Amen. Get those bonds out of there. (laughs) (laughs) This is Lance. This is Scott. Live and give on less than you make. Invest the difference. Dollars and hops out. You have been listening to the Dollars and Hops podcast. Optimizing your financial future starts with taking action today. Got a question? Shoot us an email at questions at dollarsandhops.com and the guys will tackle it on a future episode. Visit our website, dollarsandhops.com, for show notes and the craft brew lineup for each episode. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Thanks for listening.